don't have enough time to sit down and read all the best Bitcoin articles? Well, let us read them for you. This is a Crypto Economy Quick Read. What is up, crew? Welcome back to the show. We are jumping into the next uh, piece by J.W. Weatherman, and this one is called The Human Threat Model. Uh, And this is more of a discussion about systemic and, uh, like, sort of scalable theft in a way. Um, There's, uh, it kind of goes into the micro examples of all the way to ex- all the ways to exploit other human beings, uh, and then shows how they're applied in some of like essentially in like corrupt governments and uh, systems that uh, apply these things to populations, um, and how that's actually the the way that the theft is actually sustained in the long term. Uh, whereas in the short term, you know, typically uh, the cost is extremely high for criminals trying to steal from someone individually and directly, and the return is usually very low. You know, like a criminal goes to a store and uh, robs them or whatever, gets a couple of hundred bucks, but they literally run the risk of dying. Um, uh, you know, as, as there are many YouTube videos showing, a guy pulls a shotgun out from behind the register and shoots the guy. So, <laughs> um, but this one is really fun. It's a little bit, um, I would imagine people who are not... Um, heavily libertarian or anarchists who listen to this show uh, are going to possibly are going to disagree with some of the premises set uh, for the discussion or for this paper. But from those premises, from from those essentially the assumptions underlying the arguments, uh, he does a great job of detailing out each individual type of attack and how it manifests itself in governments and institutions uh, kind of at a societal level. Um, but that doesn't get, he doesn't actually get into that until the strategic application of these uh, human attacks simply because uh, a lot of them are attacks that actually only work or make sense at, this, at that institutional level. Um, so it, it'll make a whole lot more sense when we actually like, really dig into this piece um, but this one's really long. Uh, I did. I recorded some of it yesterday, but did not get an episode out. And I kept recording uh, today, thinking that I was going to try to get it out all in one episode. But I ran short on time here, so um, I'm having to stop it about two thirds of the way through. So we will have a quick finish up tomorrow, and then we'll actually have both of these published as a full standalone read. Um, uh, I'll, I'll take it without the commentary. So you'll be able to listen to it with the commentary in parts one and two for both the Bitcoin threat model and the human threat model. Um, and then you'll have both of the pieces read in full uh, without the commentary aside from the little, the little additions that I do during the discussion and uh, maybe throwing in a, uh, a counterpoint or additional point uh, during the read. Um, and, uh, but I do want to read, I mean, excuse me, I do want to discuss this one quite a bit more, uh, 
in a later episode. I might not be able to get to it tomorrow. This week is really busy despite the fact that I'm trying to cram these things in here, uh, mostly because I want them to be available for JW when he releases the website that he talked about on his show. Um, and uh, so, but I do want to talk about this one because I don't want to turn people off who uh, are not familiar with or oppose kind of the underlying assumptions like the ideological assumptions or moral assumptions that um, uh, that are basically the foundation for all of this argument. Um, but again, the bulk of this is tied to uh, how this is done at scale, um, you know, referencing just kind of large corrupt government. So it's not really that difficult to follow. Um, but regardless, let's go ahead and jump into J.W. Weatherman's amazing uh, follow-up to the Bitcoin threat model titled The Human Threat Model. Beginning The Human Threat Model, A Security Review of Humans by J.W. Weatherman. Introduction. The human threat model is intended to help humans better understand the threats that they face and the tools available and in active development for defense. Threats are assumed to be any activity designed to prevent humanity from accomplishing its mission to make the world delightful. The desire to accomplish this goal and the most effective strategy, honoring private property, is an innate characteristic of all humans. The system of property rewards productivity and enables complex systems of coordinated production to be established and managed effectively. To a human, any violation of property, starting with a human's own body and extending to the goods he has produced with his labor, is an injustice. Although this justice drive is not functional in some humans and they are looked upon by their fellows as inhuman beasts, it is considered an incomprehensible abomination that must be the result of a fundamental defect. In other words, they are no longer considered fully human by their fellow men. Because humans are so well suited for their mission, attacks on their mission will affect them deeply and cause anguish. Humans' progress towards making the world delightful is called production. The tools produced to make humans more effective in their labor are called goods. In order for an attack to be effective, it must meet two requirements. First, it must make the victims less productive. Second, it must provide the attacker with more goods than he consumed in executing the attack. This is because if he becomes poorer as a result of the attack, he will be incentivized to stop, and if he continues, he will eventually starve to death. Human production can be neatly divided into producing goods, choosing goods to produce, and rewarding production. We will look at each of these functions and the applicable attacks. Finally, we will look at strategic attacks that use an ingenious combination of attacks in order to be more effective than any one attack alone. For each attack, we will examine its major properties and the safety features in place or under active development to make these attacks less effective. To see the revision history, contribute improvements, or point out errors in this document, please see the GitHub repo, and then a link to github.com slash jwweatherman human threat model. If you would like us financially support this and other Bitcoin community projects, buy Bitcoin. 1. Producing goods. 
Humans produce goods when they use their bodies, existing goods, and resources found in the world to make new goods. In order for the produced items to be, quote, goods, they must be more useful than the goods used as inputs. An attacker could damage a human. Because humans are fragile, they can be damaged by breaking their bodies or putting them through mental anguish. If an attacker is able to damage a human enough, he will become unproductive and unable to assist in the mission of making the world delightful. Safety features. Humans are incredibly adaptable. Even if an arm or leg is removed or they suffered great mental anguish, they are rarely incapable of producing more goods than they require for survival. Even damaged humans have such a strong desire to be productive that their injuries will not allow them to avoid anguish if they do not produce. The division of labor, a side effect of property, allows damaged humans to avoid tasks they are not capable of performing. Humans are social creatures and instinctively defend one another. Humans are incredibly creative and have a talent for inventing goods, even weapons, that make defense more effective. Humans have a strong desire to punish attackers. This deters attacks and reduces the power of attackers after the fact. Punishments range from decreasing their property to death, destroying their most fundamental property their very bodies. Humans will often sacrifice themselves for their closest and weaker associates, husband for wife and child, wife for child, younger for older, etc., in defense. Humans invent highly efficient and effective systems to produce tools used to prevent attacks, defense, accurately identify attackers, justice systems, and reduce the influence of known attackers, punishment. The thousands of daily human interactions reward peaceful actions and punish attacks or even the slightest indications of a desire to attack. Genetic defects that create a predisposition to attack is bred out of the human species by reducing the property and therefore the opportunity to produce offspring of attackers. Past attacks. Cain and Abel. Expenses are high. An attacker would likely suffer death if they attempted to attack a human, either immediately in the course of defense or after the fact in the course of justice. Income is low. Unless this attack was performed in combination with another attack, there is no income for the attacker beyond the pleasure of a degenerate. Profitability, unprofitable. Because expenses are high and income is zero, this attack is unprofitable. No significant impact on mission. Isolated murder and violence has had little impact on humanity's mission to make the world delightful. It must be cleverly combined with other attacks in order to be effective. An attacker could take a human's goods. If an attacker is able to take all of the goods of a human, and he is far from assistance, he will die because he's usually unable to acquire the goods he requires directly from nature. If the attacker only takes a portion of his goods, he's effectively eliminated the contribution made by that human while he was producing those goods. This is the added effect of producing mental anguish upon the particular human and every other human that becomes aware of the attack. This mental suffering also impedes future production. 
In order to make this profitable, the attacker must possess overwhelming force, and he must be able to flee from the justice system. Two quintessential examples are finding a victim isolated during travel and a traveling band of attackers. When attacking a victim, quote, on the road, the attacker has the advantage of waiting until he is unable to avail himself of many defensive tools that are impractical to bring while traveling. The attacker is also to select a location that makes it difficult for the nearest justice system to find him. Roving bands of attackers are also able to select victims that are relatively isolated. A small village, for example, may not be able to resist a larger group of attackers. Because the attackers are continually traveling from victim to victim, the isolated village would not be able to appeal to the justice system of neighboring humans before the attackers are able to escape. These attacks are possible only when the victims fail to produce enough security goods for their circumstance. In the modern world, this implies a high degree of poverty, at least for the initial victims, because humans have a strong desire for security goods. Once the attackers have attacked poor victims, they can use the goods acquired to attack even better equipped victims. Few, if any, early writings shed light on the evolution of simple theft into more and more profitable crimes, but this logical progression is a helpful aid. 1. Theft started small and opportunistically and occurred rarely. 2. Possibly the result of unusual circumstances, some attackers became well-funded. 3. Well-funded attackers could combine murder in order to obtain a larger portion of the goods stolen without fear of a justice system. 4. Eventually, war for spoils could happen at the scale of hundreds or thousands. 5. Once it was combined with enslaving the victims so they could be robbed regularly, called a tribute or taxes, it became even more profitable. 6. Slavery evolved and added additional deceptions, such as democratic representation, social welfare, or constitutional restraints that made it even more cost-effective and more profitable. Safety features. The safety features designed to prevent this attack are identical to the safety features found under an attack could damage a human. The justice system is designed to ensure that this attack is unprofitable even if it is only occasionally detected because the punishment involves a multiple of the amount stolen. For example, in ancient Israel, a thief was required to repay seven times any amount stolen. Past Attacks The earliest recorded attacks on property are strategic attacks that include murder. 1.1, an attacker could damage a human. However, it is reasonable to assume, as is done above, that opportunistic theft of isolated individuals or goods left unprotected due to strange circumstances took place before our earliest preserved writings. Expenses are high. An attacker takes a significant risk that they would suffer a reduction in property through the justice system if they attempted to steal from a human. Income is high. If an attacker is able to target humans with significant savings, they could obtain valuable goods through theft. Profitability? Very profitable. Although the risk is high in most cases, the attacker can select victims and circumstances that allow this attack to be profitable. 
This is the only attack that is profitable on its own. If this attack could be made unprofitable, it's possible all strategic attacks would also become unprofitable. Significant Impact Simple theft must be cleverly combined with other attacks in order to be effective. However, because this attack is probably a prerequisite for all other combinations of attacks, it has significantly slowed the human mission to make the world delightful. How Bitcoin will make theft unprofitable. Simple theft is profitable because humans are periodically unable to defend themselves against attack or access the justice system after an attack. And because savings must be physically stored and transported, it can be easily stolen. Bitcoin allows humans to store their savings in a way that is totally undetectable to attackers and much more difficult to access if they guess that it exists. This greatly increases the cost involved in obtaining the goods while simultaneously decreasing the amount of goods an attacker is likely to gain. It is hoped that this will make simple theft unprofitable. An attacker could deceive a human into wanting to be unproductive. This attack is most effective when used against children. If an attacker can expose the human to the proper stimulation, he can be deceived and lose his desire to be productive. Common deceptions include Convincing the human that production is actually not a good, but a bad. For example, that the world is perfect and any changes made by humans are negative by definition. Convincing the human that he is broken and incapable of production. This is often done by giving him assignments that are naturally opposed to his nature. For example, asking a young male to sit still for long periods of time, or asking a young female to play aggressive sports, and then making it clear that their performance is disappointing. Convincing the human that the human race as a whole is only capable of destruction. Convincing the human that production is pointless, the cosmos is really chaos, and whatever humans produce will soon be returned to the void. Safety Features A desire to produce and to care for oneself and other humans is extremely strong. Even with indoctrination from as young as four years of age, these ideas are often rejected in early adulthood. The cost involved in making this attack marginally effective is very high. Essentially, it requires becoming the child's parent. The instincts of mothers and fathers to care for their own children is great. It is uncommon in most of human history for parents to willingly permit their children to be raised by strangers. Hunger and suffering are the natural results of a desire to be unproductive. In order to meet these needs, the human would need to become moderately productive. And becoming moderately productive often rekindles the human drive to be fully productive. The human drive for production is very strong, and the human mate selection process is essentially a productivity selection process. This sex drive can often overcome any desire to be unproductive. Human relationships encourage production. Humans often thoroughly examine the productivity of associates through conversation. Unproductive humans are often either pressured to become productive or excluded from society. Past Attacks 
There are no known past attacks that did not involve skillfully combining it with other attacks. This attack is most useful in order to discourage existing victims from producing defensive goods that would increase the cost of theft. Expenses are high. Because humans have a strong drive to produce and the natural world reveals itself to need improvements through death and disease, this attack requires great expense. The attacker must fund the, quote, education of the victims and must control the victims' lives for a larger period of developmental years in order to be even moderately successful. Obtaining a human to victimize is also extremely costly. Stealing a human child is at least as costly as damaging a human physically. If the attacker produces the victim through mating, his mate would defend the child and call upon the justice system for assistance. Income low. By producing a human that is not productive, the attacker does not gain any goods. Profitability unprofitable. This attack is impractical on its own, highly expensive, and produces no goods for the attacker. No significant impact on mission. There are no known instances of this attack being attempted, however, when skillfully combined with other attacks, it can be effective. 2. Determining Goods to Produce Humans need to determine what goods they should produce at a given time. If they choose to produce goods that are not as in demand as goods they used as inputs, they've actually been destructive. Even if they produce goods that are more valuable than the inputs, if they produce goods that are not as valuable as other goods they could have produced with the same inputs, they have, to some degree, failed. Therefore, it is as critical for humans to be free to discover what goods to produce as it is for them to be free to produce goods. Humans determine what goods are most needed through two primary mechanisms, conversation and prices. Through conversation, humans learn about the world around them, their fellow humans, and the needs of both. If conversation is hindered and free speech becomes costly, humans will be unable to understand the information available through prices or obtain other knowledge required to be productive. Humans have helpful instincts at birth, but require considerable conversation for those instincts to be directed into production. Prices indicate the relative demand for goods. By looking at the prices of input goods and the prices of output goods, humans can measure and maximize their productivity. Prices are discovered through the trade of goods between humans because prices are simply a ratio of goods used in past trades. In order for prices to be discovered, humans must be able to trade their property with each other. An attacker could deceive a human about the best methods for making the world delightful. If an attacker could convince a human that conversation, property, trade, and prices are not the most effective method for determining what goods to produce, he could greatly reduce the production of that human. Safety features. Human instincts for justice, based on property, are very strong. In order to learn, humans must engage in conversation. This predisposes them to allow it because they directly benefit by learning how to avoid suffering. Past Attacks Adam and Eve Steal from God All of the recorded examples of this attack have used a combination of attacks. Expenses High 
Although this attack is cheaper than attempting to convince a human that production is impossible, it remains very costly. Because conversation is necessary in order to make the argument that conversation is impossible, humans naturally reject such a claim. Trade and prices are a natural consequence of property, and as previously mentioned, humans are born with a strong sense of justice based on property. Income high. If an attacker could convince the victims to abandon the concept of property and justice, he could obtain their goods without cost. But this is probably impossible unless it is strategically combined with other attacks. Profitability? Unprofitable. This attack is impractical on its own. No significant impact on mission. There are no known instances of this attack being attempted. However, when skillfully combined with other attacks, it can be effective. 3. Rewarding Production and Punishing Destruction Humans are rewarded with prestige and goods when they are productive. Prestige is achieved when other humans show approval for the efforts of the producer. Humans are punished when they are destructive. If they are simply unproductive, they destroy their own goods and become less impressive to their fellow humans. If they attack other humans' property, they are considered criminals and are deprived of their own property in proportion to their crime. An attacker could remove a safety feature that deters attacks. If an attacker is able to remove a safety feature, he could lower the cost of an attack to the point that an attack is rewarded more than production. This would be particularly damaging as it would result in ongoing systemic attacks. Safety features. Safety features that deter attacks are mutually reinforcing. For example, if an attacker removed tools for defense, he would also need to remove the justice system, or those tools would be returned and the attacker punished. This makes it more difficult to remove a safety feature because you would need to remove most or all of them at once. Humans are highly adaptable and highly motivated to avoid attacks. They would invest nearly all of their creative capacity into restoring safety if it was removed. If the attack was successful and created a predatory environment, the attacker himself would likely become a victim. This deters all wise actors. If the attack was successful, it would cause agony and would greatly decrease the production of the humans. This would damage any attacker dependent on this production. Past Attacks there are no known past attacks. It is believed that it is impossible without skillfully combining it with other attacks. Expenses high. The justice system would regard any attacker that attempts to remove a safety feature from human society as more deserving of punishment than an attacker that attempted to damage a human. This, combined with the fact that the attacker would need to deceive or coerce many victims simultaneously, makes this attack impractical on its own. Income low. Even if an attacker could find a way to remove a safety feature, this would not in itself result in any goods for the attacker. Obviously, this could naturally be combined with other attacks, but strategic attacks are covered in the next section. Profitability. Unprofitable. This attack is impractical on its own. No significant impact on mission. 
There are no known instances of this attack being attempted. However, when skillfully combined with other attacks, it can be effective. An attacker could trick humans into becoming attackers. If an attacker was able to deceive a human into becoming an attacker, he would successfully remove the productive capacity of both the new attacker, because he is focused on destructive acts, and the new attacker's victims, because they are being prevented from producing effectively. Safety Features All of the safety features that apply to the specific attack attempted by the new attacker apply. For example, if the newly created attacker attempted to damage a human, all the associated safety features in that section would apply. Humans instinctually want to produce, and they suffer emotionally when they do not, because they're occupied attacking others. Humans instinctually want to protect rather than harm other humans. Predatory activities usually result in anguish for the attacker that can cause irreparable damage. This is a plausible explanation for some of the mental anguish of soldiers. Past Attacks There are no known past attacks because it's impossible without skillfully combining it with other attacks. Expenses High The justice system would regard any attacker that attempts to convince a human to attack as more deserving of punishment than an attacker that attempted to damage a human directly. Income Low Even if an attacker could find a way to convince a human to become an attacker, this would not in itself result in any goods for the attacker. Strategic attacks are covered in the next section. Unprofitable. This attack is impractical by itself. No significant impact on mission. There's no known instances of this attack being attempted. However, when skillfully combined with others, it can be effective. 4. Strategic attacks. Strategic attacks use a crafty combination of attacks to be more effective. It's believed that all of these attacks are dependent on the profitability of an attacker could take a human's goods. Strategic attacks leverage this initial flaw in human safety features to amplify the profitability by reducing the costs and increasing the income from theft. This section will review a few of the most popular attacks throughout human history. Socialist Slavery Alright guys, let's take a quick break real fast and talk about our sponsor because they are the ones that allow me to keep this show alive. Socialist Slavery Socialist Slavery is a combination of attacks that's proven to be profitable for the attackers. It deceives humans about the very best way to make the world delightful. In order to convince them to remove safety features that deter attacks, and it even tricks humans into becoming attackers themselves. Ultimately, the original attacker is rewarded with the ability to take goods of the victims unhindered. This attack is probably only possible if the attacker is already well-funded through taxation slavery, and may also require that the taxation slavery leverages democracy in order to amplify its profitability. Under socialist slavery, also called communism or fascism, the victims are told that the very concept of, quote, private ownership of goods has been eliminated. In this way, the attackers claim they are not stealing everything produced by the victim, but merely allocating resources more effectively. 
They claim this will better accomplish the mission of making the world delightful because everyone is treated equally. In reality, the predators allocate the stolen resources for their own benefit and claim possession of the very bodies of the victims. Past Attacks National Socialism in Germany, 1932-45 Communist Russia, 1917-1991 Fascist Italy in 1922-1945 and Wikipedia articles linking to each of these. Expenses because resources are rapidly squandered, predators are forced to create a steady stream of new victims. If they fail to deliver, quote, fresh meat, the existing victims will kill the predators out of sheer desperation. To gain new victims, predators must war with bystanders, and this is very expensive. If the predators do manage to bring in enough additional victims, they will still not be able to prevent a constantly decreasing standard of living. So even in the best case scenario, victims are increasingly motivated to kill the predator. Predators do assume some risk in attempting to gain power over a population, but they primarily use deception to obtain victims. This is far cheaper than kidnapping or purchasing victims from other predators. Income as in racial slavery, the very bodies of the victims are controlled by the predators. All goods produced are immediately owned by the predators. This strategy of deception has proven more effective than racial slavery, where the predators attempted to convince victims that they are an inferior race of men. If victims' deception is increased, the productivity of victims increases, and this increases the income of the attackers. One indication of its deceptive power is the fact that it has been effectively used to steal from men performing skilled and creative labor, where racial slavery has only been effective in stealing from men engaged in unskilled labor. Presumably, this is because it's easier to inflict violence when productivity drops in unskilled and uncreative tasks, because productivity is easy to measure. For example, if a victim reduces the number of mud bricks produced from 100 to 90, it is obvious production has dropped. But if a carpenter takes 8 or 9 days instead of 7 to produce a chest of drawers, it can be because the materials proved challenging, the tools needed additional care, or that the carpenter improved the quality. However, the fact that victim productivity under socialist slavery compares favorably to the productivity of victims under racial slavery does not mean that it is not ultimately an attack on humanity's mission to produce a delightful world. Productivity is greatly hindered under socialist slavery. In socialist slavery, the key ruse that there is a difference between ownership of a resource and the power to allocate that resource is soon unmasked by daily experience. In the past, the victims decided what goods they would acquire for their labor and how they would enjoy those goods. Now they see that officials decide what goods will produce and how those goods will be enjoyed. The distinction between ownership and the power to decide is seen as a lie to even the most gullible. This greatly decreases incentives to produce, and it greatly increases the incentives to participate in predation, as this is the only way to obtain goods. This creates a vicious cycle where victims continually become more effective predators and less effective producers. This form of slavery also prevents good decision-making. Good decisions require market prices, and market prices require free exchange between owners. 
To understand this, imagine you have a field that's suitable for wheat or corn. How do you decide what crop to produce? Under normal circumstances, you can compare your costs for each crop to the expected sale price, based roughly on past prices, and you can grow the crop that will produce the greatest profit. Let's assume you determine that corn is going to be more profitable. This could be because a disease has affected corn production on another continent. It could be because the first ethanol-based engine was invented last week and insiders are buying corn futures. It could also be the result of increased labor cost after a dam broke and damaged a nearby town. It could be a million things or more, but in order to make the best decision for consumers, you need only to know the prices. Now imagine that you are a socialist slave owner. You own the men, you own the fields, you own the corn, the wheat, and all of the equipment. How will you decide if this particular field should go corn or wheat? What is the ratio of demand between corn and wheat? Your best option is to do a questionnaire and ask people how much corn and wheat they need this year. But since these people will not have to balance their desire for wheat with their desire for corn and milk, their requests will not reflect any of the costs involved. If they knew corn was five times more costly to produce, would they have bothered to change their forms? How could they possibly know that it's five times more costly? And if everyone asks for more than is available, how much will you deny them? Will you reduce the bakery and the airport's allocation of wheat by the same percentage? Who actually needs it more? What if they need a fixed ratio between milk and wheat because they're a bakery, and without milk the wheat will be wasted? Will that appear as a footnote on the survey so you know how to reduce their request for milk automatically if you can't fill their full request for wheat? Maybe you should improve the forms and start over. And even before you collected the first forms, the data is low quality as it is and would be outdated. The reality is that all of this data is represented in the deceptively simple market price. Millions of people making trade-off decisions millions of times a day in real time is summarized in the constantly fluctuating market price of a product. That is the very purpose of a price, to communicate and coordinate where resources are most needed in order to make the world more delightful. By taking ownership of all of these goods, the predator has gained the ability to use them for his pleasure, but he has destroyed the distribution decision-making, reflected in market prices, essential for producing the things he wants to enjoy. The socialist slave owner is like a child that steals a candy factory only to find he is left eating granulated sugar and raw cocoa. Link to Mises.org Library, Economic Calculation in the Socialist Commonwealth. This is why populations under socialist slavery only survive as long as they are able to consume previously created resources. The deception is temporary and predators can't make informed decisions. This greatly limits both the duration and amount that the predators are able to steal from the victims, making the overall productivity of victims low. Profitability? Moderate. While the portion of goods stolen from victims is as high as theoretically possible, the cost, combined with the inability to make reasonable decisions, makes socialist slavery a temporary venture with constantly decreasing returns. In this way, socialist slavery is like a Ponzi scheme. Predators that get in and out early profit greatly, 
but eventually the institution collapses and the remaining predators suffer along with the victims. How Bitcoin Disrupts Socialist Slavery Bitcoin disables socialist slavery in three major ways. First, wealth stored in Bitcoin is very difficult to steal. Without the ability to steal the savings of victims, socialist slavery may not be possible. Second, Bitcoin makes it safer to make black market exchanges. This allows victims to produce and trade goods without the predator's knowledge. Imagine that Sally creates pants. She needs to purchase cloth and tools. This can now be done in secret. She needs to work to turn that cloth into the more valuable pants, easily done in secret. Finally, she needs to sell her finished pants to customers. This can now be done on the black market. Of course, the predator can still periodically rob Sally, and it would be very hard for her to scale up production. Factories are hard to hide. But Bitcoin does make socialist slavery less profitable by making secret trades more efficient and safer. And third, socialist slavery requires the deception of a large portion of the population. Otherwise, it would be even less profitable than racial slavery. In order to accomplish this deception, a charismatic leader is required. If a small number of potential victims realizes that this new leader is attempting to establish socialist slavery, they could take advantage of a surprising mechanism enabled by anonymous gambling. Getting Hitler to Throw the Game To illustrate this, let's imagine that we live in Germany in 1932. Hitler is about to rise to power, and it's clear to many he intends to establish socialist slavery. But unlike the real 1932, let's assume Bitcoin is available and commonly used for anonymous gambling. Wealthy factory owners can be sure that Hitler will steal their stuff as soon as he can. In response, they buy an insurance policy. Many of them place a bet that Hitler will become chancellor before the end of the year. At first, this would seem like a foolish bet. Everyone can tell that he will become chancellor. But this bet creates an unexpected incentive. Anyone in a position to prevent Hitler from becoming chancellor could bet against these men and take action to ensure the outcome, namely, ensuring Hitler does not become chancellor. Anyone with secrets about Hitler that would make his appointment less likely would be wise to share them after claiming the bet. Hitler himself might decide to take the bet, resign, and become a painter. If the pot became large enough, it would be irresistible to many people with special access. While this is probably one of the strangest applications of private defense, it could be effective at preventing the establishment of socialist slavery. And its great advantage is that its only prerequisite is anonymous and public gambling. If you can bet that evil will win, you can tempt it into throwing the game. Any one of these effects created by Bitcoin could be enough to prevent the establishment of socialist slavery. Sexual slavery. Sexual slavery is an abomination that takes advantage of situations where the justice system is not functional and there are enough damaged humans that are willing to trade goods in order to damage other humans. Under sexual slavery, the attacker, the slave owner, takes ownership of the victim's body and rents it to degenerates that use it for sexual gratification. Past Attacks, the Roman and the Greek Empires, Wikipedia page on sexual slavery in the ancient world. 
the United States Empire present day. A link to sfgate.com article about a, uh, the international sex trafficking market, a multi-billion dollar market where uh, San Francisco is a major center in establishing and coordinating the market. Expenses. This is probably the most objectionable form of predation to the average human mind. Victims are highly motivated to escape or kill the predator, and many bystanders are willing to risk their own lives or at least invest aggressively in order to see the predator suffer justice. Although predators often select geographies where other predators are willing to absorb some of the cost, the fact remains that, regardless of who pays the bills, the costs are very high. Because of the similarities with racial slavery, where we have reliable historical data, it is reasonable to assume that most predators purchase victims from other predators, and this represents a significant upfront investment. Income. As of this writing, there are enough mentally underdeveloped and financially capable individuals to support a high market price for the opportunity to engage in this form of violence and depravity. It is particularly odious to call receiving sexual abuse, quote, production, but it is labor, use of a person's body, and it does produce economic goods, sexual satisfaction. Profitability, moderate. Although the income obtained from this form of slavery is high, the high costs greatly reduce the profitability. Unfortunately, this remains a form of slavery that is profitable in the modern and economically developed world. How Bitcoin Disrupts Sexual Slavery Because sexual slavery is so repulsive to the human mind, it is only possible when security services are completely inept. And this only occurs, in wealthy countries at least, when security services are state monopolies funded through taxation and legal tender slavery. Bitcoin will disrupt both of these funding sources directly, and they are addressed below. Once people are free to hire security companies to perform the functions monopolized by the state, the quality will go up enough to make sexual slavery an unprofitable business by greatly increasing the costs to the predator. To better understand this, let's start by looking at how pathetic our existing monopolized security services are today. Fifty years ago, about nine people were arrested for every ten murders. This might sound like okay results, but it isn't intelligent murderers that make their crimes look like accidents or suicide, or that hid the body so the victim is considered missing, are not included in that number. Also, this is the number of murder cases that resulted in an arrest. The number of murder cases that resulted in a conviction are lower. The number is further skewed by the fact that many murder investigations are simply a matter of asking people at the scene what happened. This is partially because the average IQ of a murder, especially one that gets arrested, is low. If you're not feeling good about the chances that a relatively smart person would be caught, you're about to feel worse. As of this writing, the number has dropped from 9 arrests to only 6 out of every 10, again, known murders. Not enough budget, maybe? New York City police spending is $4.89 billion per year. There are less than 150 homicide investigations per year in New York City. That's over $30 million per investigation. Of course, most of that money is spent on activities that are less important, like drug prohibition. But that's the point. 
consumers are not getting what they want. The average salary for a homicide detective is about the same as the manager at a Chick-fil-A. However, since we are operating outside the market, we really can't say if that is too high or too low. Our gut reaction is no more informed than the bureaucrats that set salaries and decide that this is the best way to spend $5 billion. But through logic, we can discover the fact that unlike a Chick-fil-A, the police will suffer financially if they become effective. Managers at Chick-fil-A receive bonuses based on the amount of chicken they sell, but police officers get promoted when the police force grows larger. When the police ask the city for additional budget, their best ally is a high crime rate. If they are more effective, they are punished with decreasing, or at best, flat budgets. On the other hand, they are financially rewarded if they can obtain money or goods by stealing them from citizens. This is called civil asset forfeiture in the USA. Is it surprising that the quality of homicide investigations have dropped and the amount of civil asset forfeiture has increased? This doesn't mean police officers are intentionally corrupt, although our aversion to this idea is probably more a result of public schooling than personal experience, but it does mean that they are rewarded when they do evil and punished when they do good. Should we expect positive results? At best, we should expect a system that is slow, ineffective, and boring. If we can't kick our idea of the selfless public servant, quote-unquote, maybe we can at least acknowledge that this state of affairs would be demotivating to good men. Over time, we should also expect most good and capable men to leave the police force and find other work. Even a selfless and capable man must decide if he is going to sacrifice his family's financial well-being on behalf of strangers, and it isn't obvious that this holy man should choose strangers. We should also expect policies that attempt to exclude smart and capable men, because when the good men leave to better care for their families and communities, only the dregs remain in management. They are incentivized to protect their positions and reduce their labor by only hiring men that are either bad or too dim to get frustrated and cause, quote, management problems. And this is exactly what we see. Police forces actually test for IQ to ensure that they don't hire anyone intelligent. They openly admit that the ability to think clearly makes you a poor fit for the police force. Link to ABC News Go!, court okays barring of high IQs in cops. Why doesn't Chick-fil-A need to exclude smart people from their employment? Because performance is rewarded in the market and punished in state monopolies. It is always a challenge to imagine how thousands of entrepreneurs will problem-solve in order to provide a good service at a good price, but if they can do it with food, arguably more essential to life than security services, we shouldn't be skeptical. If I have been successful, at least in introducing some doubt that security services are the one magical exception where state monopolies provide better services than free competition, we can move on to discovering how Bitcoin will break the backs of these monopolies. For a more detailed description of how police forces would be improved with competition, see Mises.org blog on privatizing police. How Bitcoin Will Bust the Police Trust While the ideal way to improve security services, to the point that sexual slavery is no longer profitable, is through free and open and legal competition, 
Bitcoin provides an odd mechanism that can work around state monopolies without a shift in public opinion. Through anonymous gambling, you can safely purchase and provide security services on the black market. If you suspect someone of a crime, you can bet that they did not commit the crime. Anyone with evidence that they did in fact commit the crime is incentivized to take the bet and then provide evidence for their guilt. In the case of sexual slavery, anyone, including other degenerates, could anonymously profit by providing evidence of the crime. If the state monopoly service still refuses to take appropriate action against the predator, a bet could be placed that he will not be brought to justice. This would incentivize individuals within the state monopoly to bring the predator to justice after taking the bet. Think of it as reverse corruption. If you can bet that evil will win, you can tempt it to throw the game. And we don't need to catch everyone all the time. We simply need to increase the cost for the predator enough to make it too expensive to run as a business. Once racial slavery became unprofitable, it was globally eradicated as an institution, and Bitcoin will do the same thing to sexual slavery. Prohibition Slavery All right, we are going to stop there for today. I'm about two-thirds of the way through the human threat model. Um, and uh, there are a number of things that I want to go into, but I want to have uh, uh, quite a bit more time to talk about it because there's specifically a number of different um, uh, elements here where uh, he does not provide examples of some of these uh, as uh, attacks in isolation, particularly early on. Um, and then... kind of just shows the systemic versions of these in like socialist slavery and things that we see um, on large scale and through nation states and, uh, you know, corrupt governments, mafias, that type of thing. Uh, But uh, I think there's actually some good discussion about some of the earlier um, isolated attacks in these and how they actually could work and technically do happen, they actually do happen on a micro scale. Um, and so I was reading through this and I was thinking specifically, like they'd be like, there are no documented uh, 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 examples of this attack um, uh, except for ones where they've been strategically included or uh, combined with other attacks. Um, and I, I kind of begged to differ with those. And, and it made me documented is probably the key word there and the fact that the, you know, attacks are not quote unquote in isolation. But I think there's some good, some really good examples that are very, uh, that are easy to identify with um, of some of these particular types of attacks. Uh, And uh, obviously this entire piece is very, very centered though around the, uh, these attacks at scale is how are these sustained and what are the largest, what are the most broad examples of these types of corruption. But even though this uh, piece is very, um, it's political, I guess you could say, Um, it's not really that it's political, it's that the assumptions are very objective and they do not accept the political narrative of uh, politicians and uh, kind of uh, governments being representative of the people. And so because of that, it ends up being very political in the sense of uh, establishing a foundation of 
liberty to start this model uh, for explaining what these kinds of what these kinds of uh, threats and attacks are. Uh, so, because of that, it's a really interesting discussion. Because you would think, like, probably most people who are listening to this, if you're not an anarchist, you're you know this is probably very jarring. But I still think there's some great discussion here around the ideas that are held that try to excuse some of these behaviors in certain people um, or certain uh, occupations or institutions and and his discussions of uh, market prices and the deterioration, uh, the natural deterioration of monopolistic police and security forces is really, really interesting and is something that I think I've touched on uh, on this show before. Prices in particular, I know we've hit prices a number of times, and there's going to be a couple of episodes that I'm going to go back and link to, but I really want to get into this more in depth because I know there are probably a lot of people listening that, or at least some people listening, that probably take issue with some of the stuff in this uh, from an ideological standpoint or a philosophical standpoint. So uh, it might be really fun to cover this a little bit more in depth uh, later on. But with that, uh, I just do not have the time anymore to go through this, and uh, I really need to get back to some other stuff. So I'm going to try to finish this up really quick in the morning and get it out for J.W. Weatherman um, so that he can uh, drop, uh, so he can release the website uh, that's associated with these two works. And uh, uh, you guys should check that out if you don't know J.W. Weatherman. you got to be following him. Uh, always some really, really interesting discussion, and these are some pretty pretty fantastic works, and I want to talk about how Bitcoin changes, where, I, where he may be exaggerating or, exaggerating or uh, uh, what's the word, um, uh, being too overzealous maybe about the impact that Bitcoin will have on these types of uh, threat models, but also where he might be exactly right and kind of other ways that uh, Bitcoin might have might affect these things. I think he's. I think he's probably putting too much weight on the um, on the gambling uh, theory, uh, which is very interesting. That's that's one of those really really cool uh, threat and like kind of insurance models that uh, that this really really fascinating. I, I don't remember where I first read about that, but it was in Bitcoin that I started hearing people talking about those types of quote-unquote security services through gambling mechanisms and uh, uh, but I think he may be putting too much weight on that as a singular like as an isolated way to prevent this because I think there might be a whole lot more to say about the funding model but again we aren't through the end of this paper yet as well so there's still more to cover and like I said again I just want to talk a lot about about uh, a lot of the things inside this paper so uh, again, we're going to close this here. Thank you guys so much for listening. Stick with us. I think I think you're going to have fun in the breakdown of a lot of the stuff here, and I really want to add my thoughts. So please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and uh, Stitcher and Spotify and Anchor and all those different places. And don't forget to share it with all of your friends in the Bitcoin and crypto economy space. Um, this has been another episode of the Crypto Economy Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, guys, and I will catch you back here next time. Until then, take it easy, guys.